We are nearing the end of our conversation drawn from the book of Leviticus, our conversation about Iron Age wisdom. So we'll be wrapping that up next week so you can hold your applause. We are, we are looking at this very difficult book for wisdom because, because however obscure it may seem to us, we know that, that Christians and, and our Jewish predecessors have consulted this book among many others for 3,000 years. People have turned to uh, the the Hebrew scriptures, including the book of Leviticus, for wisdom. And if we live in a perplexing time, then we are willing to do the work of looking for wisdom uh, wherever we think it may be found, including uh, this difficult book. And today we're going to look at a passage that is that is has its own little confusion because, as I mentioned to the children, it's got a very familiar verse, um, one that Jesus said was central to understanding what He was doing and the way God wants us to to live and and uh, be. But it is also uh, it has also got a, a, a verse that is that is uh, uh, that is that is a study in obscurity. Um, so uh, the the verse that is familiar is is. Um, What's called the the it's, it's half of the great commandment. It's the law of love. Jesus says, um, "You must not take revenge or hold a grudge against any of your people." Um, so, none of us have ever done that, right? We're good Christians, right? <laughs> so, held a grudge, um, and he's talking about your people. So, so you know, whoever you define your people to be, and he says, instead, you must love those people, your neighbors, as yourself. So. So we're familiar with that. Um, if, if we've heard of the law of love, Jesus says uh, that it is part of the great commandment. Uh, a expert in the law came to him one day and said, what's the most important commandment in the law? And Jesus said, well, you're the expert. You tell me. And the expert says, well, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So he uh, he quotes from the, the, the Hebrew law, and um, and Jesus says, you are right. Uh, do this, and you will live. And um, so, because that is so familiar, it is puzzling to see next to it this obscure thing about farming and animal husbandry and planting and so forth. And it says you must keep my rules. So, all right, okay. Now we don't actually have to do that, as I mentioned before. Uh, we are not operating under the, the the law of works. We're not required to keep the this law because Jesus has fulfilled this law, and in its place. Jesus gave us a much simpler law. He gave us the law of love, part of which is the the law of loving our neighbor. So, so we are looking at this for wisdom. We're not looking at it for new new things to do every morning or something. But so so we must keep a different rule. But but we're looking beyond that particular part of this. It says, and then it says, do not crossbreed your livestock. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothes made of two kinds of material. So take a moment now and just think to yourself, well, how would I even do that, right? Let's assume that I was going to carry out that rule, right? Well, I don't have any livestock. Um, does this mean, you know, all livestock? Is is it um, strictly cattle? The uh, is it is it uh, any any barnyard animal? Is it any animal? You know, if I've got a dog, does it does it count? You know, can I not uh, can I not breed a poodle with a with a, a Labrador and wind up with a Labradoodle. What is what are the parameters of this? What does it mean when it says do not do not crossbreed your livestock, or uh, do not plant your field with two kinds of seed? Well, how how what's the definition of field? 
you know, how, how big can a field be? Because, you know, if I've got a garden with a whole bunch of different types of plant, do I count, you know, every square foot is a different field? You know, what is, what is the idea here that's going on? How would I actually implement this? And, um, do not wear clothes made from two kinds of materials. Well, you know, nowadays we would ask the question natural versus synthetic, but I mean, they had multiple types of fiber in those days. They could, they could have, they didn't have polycotton blends, but they had, they had linen and wool and things like that. So we could ask, well, th- those two kinds of material, how about, how about, um, uh, can, you know, is it just if, if the, the, the fabric itself is made of different kinds of thread? What if it's like layers? What if I'm wearing an all cotton undershirt? Can I wear a Gore-Tex jacket? You know, so we get into questions like this um, because because it's hard to imagine how would I, how would you actually go about implementing this this rule? And as we think through those questions, well, how would you even do that? I think we find ourselves in the same position as that expert that Jesus talked to about the first the first verse. Where, where Jesus said, you know, what is the, what is the rule? And the guy says, it's to love your neighbor as yourself, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, right, do that and you will live. And what does the guy do? He says, he says, now wait a second, what do you mean by neighbor? And so then Jesus tells the famous story of the Good Samaritan. He tells the story about the man who is, who is uh, beset by thieves and left for dead. And uh, then a priest and a Levite come along and they leave him there. But then the Samaritan comes along and the Samaritan um, has compassion on him and um, uh, uh, helps, uh, takes him to a, um, an inn and looks after him and so forth. So Jesus asks, well, you tell me, who is the, who is the neighbor? And the guy kind of struggles, but he says, you, you know the one, the, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, Jesus says, do this, um, go, go and do likewise. So if we ask ourselves the question, well, what exactly do you mean by field? What do you mean by cattle or, or uh, livestock? What do you mean by different kinds of clothes? We might find ourselves uh, uncomfortably close to that lawyer who's going, well, what do you mean by neighbor? And honestly, uh, Jesus didn't in, in embarrass him, but Jesus, he was talking to a lawyer, right? He would have known, as a, as a, as a lawyer, a, 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 an expert in the Jewish law, he would have known the, the third verse we saw from just a couple of verses down, where it says, any immigrant who lives with you must be treated as one of your citizens. You must love them as yourself. So the exact same command, love them as yourself, whether they are your, your kinfolk, your neighbors, or whether they are Samaritans. So Jesus is saying, this is a, this is a very broad, uh, statement, and you should have known that because you're the lawyer. So, so we could ask ourselves, well, what should we have known? Because, you know, we may not know the book of Leviticus, but we have some familiarity perhaps with, with, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean? And if we, if we think about what does it mean, I think one of the places that we unfortunately have to stop and, and we have to pause and say, well, what does it not mean? And the reason for this is that it has a, um, here, I'm gonna, set that down. So, so, um, what does it not mean? And the reason is it's got a long history of, of interpretation, which includes a fair amount of misinterpretation, that this verse, uh, is one of several that has been used to, to, um, to justify some really bad, uh, uh um, policies. And, um, uh, let me, um, 
Let me tell you a, a little story. When my son was about 10 months, maybe a year old, he and I were shopping. He was in, you know, the little grocery cart kind of thing with the little seat up in the front. So he was sitting there and this sweet little old lady um, came up and she, you know, complimented him. Oh, what a, what a nice little boy or something like that. I don't remember what she said, but I do remember what she said next. And, you know, I said, you know, thank you. You know, we like him too or something like that. And, and then the next thing she said was, it's so good to see somebody who's not a mix. She said, she said, so many children today, they're, they're mixed breeds. And I just kind of thought, what rock did you crawl out from under, lady? That's so, it was, I was flabbergasted. I mean, you know, kind of in my head, I wasn't surprised that people like that existed, but I never expected to meet one or have her just volunteer this thinking. And so I kind of stumbled through a, we have to be anywhere else right now. And so I just left. I didn't ask her to explain her thinking. I just kind of said, you know, you know, I don't want my son exposed to your thoughts. And that was really the way I reacted then. But it's, it's not um, like that line of thinking has changed. There is this, there is this perception that verses like this in the Bible, and it still lingers, verses like this um, mean that God is opposed to mixing races and has been used to justify things like segregation in the United States or apartheid in South Africa. It's been used uh, to, to forbid interracial marriage. And that line of thought is still is still lingering in our society today. And just this week in the news, there was a story about a mixed-race family. There was a woman who was traveling with a biracial daughter, her, her biracial daughter, and uh, the, the, um, the attendants on the flight they were on thought that they might be, she might be trafficking the child. And so when they arrived in their destination, there were police waiting, and they had to sort out you know, who all was, was involved. And so the airline has, has, has apologized, and my guess is the airline is going to do some, some training. And, you know, I mean, it, it's a hard problem, right? No one wants to, to, to uh, facilitate uh, human trafficking, so I get that. But at the same time, this, this um, legacy thinking about uh, interracial um, uh, uh, people and, and interracial relationships still lingers with us. So I do need to explain, before we can talk about what this verse means, I need to make sure we're clear that it does not mean that um, that we cannot um, have interracial uh, relationships. There is a number of pa- there are a number of passages in the scriptures that talk about that forbid intermarriage, and where they do, it is one hundred percent sure that in every case it's talking about religion, not race. And I can't go through them all. We don't have time for that. But I want to talk about a few. Famously, uh, King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived before Jesus, um, was was in his old age, he married 700 women and had 300 concubines beside. And somewhere in that group was some one or ones who turned his heart um, after other gods. It's explicitly said his problem wasn't that he had a thousand uh, women, his problem in his harem, his problem was that they turned his heart to other gods. So even though he did all this intermarrying with other other nations and other people, that was his problem. And we read in the in the Bible itself, in fact in Matthew's Bible it begins 
with the genealogy of Jesus. It talks about how Jesus is from the line of David. And who is David descended from? Well, we read, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Rahab and Ruth are foreigners. They are from, they are from the, the neighboring nations, those same people who are forbidden to intermarry. But these women were not changing people's religion. So there's no objection to them. And in fact, probably my favorite comes from the book of Numbers. Uh, Moses' sister and brother, Miriam and Aaron, they criticize, um, Moses on account of the Cushite woman who he, he, whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. So twice it tells us, you know, in case we miss that, Moses married a Cushite woman. And they criticized him. They said, you're not supposed to do that. And God hears. And God says, you three, right now, out to the tent of meeting. And God says, you know the relationship I have with Moses. And you're going to criticize my servant. God disciplines um, Aaron and um, uh, Miriam for criticizing Moses for his um, for his uh, uh, interracial or inter I don't know what the word would be international um, uh, marriage. There's nothing wrong with mixing races. There's only something wrong with mixing religion, and that's what we're going to talk about because that idea is really what's at work here in this passage. So this is about mixing things that shouldn't be mixed. And most prominently among them is religion. So where did I go? So you you three go out to the tent. And why aren't you afraid to criticize my, my servant Moses? You should be afraid. So what is this about? This is not about interracial unions or uh, uh, mixing and water fountains and things like that. This is about diversity, because God likes diversity. We serve an infinite God, and all the people on, on earth who are created in his image are not enough to reflect his infinitude. That's how infinite works. God invented diversity. God invented diversity. We see this literally the first paragraph of the Bible. What does it tell us in the Bible? It says, it says, God said, let there be light, and light appeared. God saw how good the light was. And then God separated the light from the darkness. God didn't make gloom. God didn't make twilight. God made light and dark, because God likes variety. God likes diversity. The very first thing God does is he creates something that did not exist before. He does not create some kind of bland mix of of uh, uh, that's halfway in the middle. God likes diversity. God invented it. But he also likes unity. God wants unity. God wants to eat his cake and have it too. God wants something that we find very difficult. In fact, one of the last things Jesus does in his earthly ministry is he prays what's called the high priestly prayer. Jesus lifts up a prayer to God shortly before he's arrested. And in it, he says, I pray that they, the, the people who will follow me, I pray that they will be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. Jesus, this is the prayer that Jesus has for his church, that we would be one. And um, sadly, that's not yet a prayer that has been um uh, realized in its fullness the way it will be in God's time. But there is this um, 
desire. God doesn't want us all to be the same. God wants us to be unified, and there's a difference. So the first point, God invented diversity and desires unity. So for us, we may say, well, how do you get that? If you want both, how can you do that? It seems to me that you can only have one or the other. You can have diversity or unity, but not both. God is asking the impossible, and that's because the world thinks the only way you can get unity is through coercion or compromise. Jesus rules out the first one. Jesus says flatly, um, you know the ones who are considered the rulers of the, Gal- uh, of the Gentiles show off their authority over them and their high-ranking officials order them around. That basically the idea is, how do you achieve unity? You say, be reasonable, do it my way. That's the way the world achieves unity. There is a famous story, uh, a Roman uh, king, the last Roman king. After that, they had emperors and consuls and all kinds of things. But the very last Roman king was a guy named Tarquin. And somebody asked him, how does he maintain you know, order in his empire? How does he make sure that everybody um, is united? And he went out to his garden, took his cane, and started slicing like this and chopping down all the tall poppies. And the idea is anybody who stuck their head up <laughs> got their head taken off. That there's this idea of I can I can achieve unity by getting rid of any tall poppies. I don't want any variety. I want everybody to know exactly what they are. They are short poppies. Anybody who sticks their head up will lose their head. That's the way the world thinks about achieving unity. It says it says you can achieve unity by coercing people, by getting rid of any tall poppies. And Jesus has ruled that out. But the other way, the other way that, I mean, good, you know, thank you, Jesus, that, you know, because <laughs> we're all tall poppies depending on, you know, what kind of category of poppy we are. That's a good thing that Jesus has ruled that out, right? But the other thing is uh, the way that the world achieves unity is it, it compromises. It says, all right, let's split the difference. Let's meet halfway. Let's, let's find something that's somewhere between what I want and what you want, and we'll do that, right? This is how you get 2,500 page infrastructure bills, right? Because there's 400, what, 535 people in Congress, and each one of them gets five pages, basically. So, so, uh, they compromise. They come to something that they can all live with. Um, they meet in the middle. And that's, that's the other thing the world does, is it says, it says, I want, I want some of mine and some of yours, and we'll kind of meet in the middle, and that may be an appropriate way to to uh, uh, pass legislation. Um, but I'm not talking about legislation. I'm talking about how we as kingdom people uh, behave. And we read both in the New Testament and the Old that we should not um, compromise. It says explicitly in the Book of Deuteronomy. It says, "Don't add anything to the wor- word that I am commanding you, and don't take anything from it." In the book of Revelation, there's actually a curse that's associated with that. Here it just says, don't do it. And we read in the book of Kings, um, the, uh, we, we heard uh, last week about the, this little contest that was going on at Mount Carmel. Uh, Elijah, uh, Elijah the prophet, challenges the priests of Baal to, to this, um, to this uh, uh, my God's more powerful than your God thing. And their God is, in fact, weaker than, than God. And so then... Um, Elijah challenges the people. He says, how long will you go on uh, limping back and forth, hobbling back and forth between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow God. If Baal is God, follow Baal. Don't try and have some little halfway in between, sort of Lord, sort of God, sort of Baal. Pick one. 
Just, just pick one and do that. And we see the same thinking in the book of Revelation. Jesus dictates a letter to the church in Laodicea, and he says, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus would actually rather have you be on the other side than somewhere in the middle. So, the world wants to achieve unity by finding some mushy middle, some vague middle ground where we kind of give up a little bit of what we believe in exchange for a little bit of what the other person believes. And Jesus says, don't do that. Godly unity, on the other hand, rests on compassion and conversion. So, compassion. Well, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus is saying, it's easy to love people you get along with. (laughs) Nothing could be simpler than to love people who are just like you, people who think the same way you do, who act the same way you do. Tax collectors can do that. Gentiles do that. There's no virtue in loving people who it's no trouble to love. Jesus is saying, can you love people who are different? Can you love people despite them being different? Can you love people in all their variety? That's the question Jesus is challenging his followers with. So, the question is, can we love a tax collector? In, in, in his culture, tax collector was the worst person. It was, it was the, uh, the, the, the person who's selling, you know, fentanyl outside the schoolhouse. That's how bad tax collectors were. Can you love that person? Well, I don't know, but maybe I should try. Then, then we get into the question of what if they're really doing something that's wrong? What if they're, what if they're evil? Well, Jesus has an answer for that. He says, I, I can deal with that. He says, they can change. And Christianity is centered around the idea that God can change people, that God, and really only God, can change the human heart. Who here has successfully nagged somebody into changing? You know, all right, you can't do it. That's above your pay grade. God can change someone's heart. You can't, right? You can nag them into compromising. You can use the world's methods and you will get the world's results. But who can actually change the human heart? God can change the human heart. And this is at the center of Christianity. Jesus tells Nicodemus, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, unless someone becomes a new creature, they will never see the kingdom of God. And the Apostle Paul says, but if they do, then they are in fact part of that new creation. Anyone who is in Christ, that person is part of the new creation. So, God wants his cake, and he wants to eat it too. God wants unity and diversity. He doesn't want some kind of split-down-the-middle, halfway compromise. So I want you to reflect my variety, and I want you to be unified. So, what is the application? What, what, what do we do with this? You know, do we just say, okay, well, mixtures are bad? You know, isn't it true that, that sometimes two great things are great together? 
Well, you know, maybe they are. Maybe they are. But, but, but I think we have to at least pause and say, is that always true? Is it true that mixtures are, are something, you know, we live in a technological age. We are consistently making new things. There's new products, right? We, you know, you know, everything is described in terms of two things that came before. It's a little bit of Peter Pan and a little bit of, you know, Star Wars or, you know, whatever. You know, it's, we describe things in terms of the things we know as kind of mixtures. But not everything is an unalloyed good. And I want to I want to ask you to think about two things. Don't answer the, this question first. What do you think about gain of function research? Right. This is a hot button issue, and half of our population is very opposed to gain of function research. It's been in the news. We hear about whether or not it was funded by you know the government and all these things. We, we, we hear kind of this muttering backdrop of gain of function, and I think most of us don't have any real clue what gain of function is. But what it boils down to is taking a virus and adding some other genes to it that weren't there before, mixing and matching to create a virus that is different from the one before. So if you've got an opinion about gain of function research, hold on to that because I want to ask you a different question. What do you think about golden rice? Golden rice is a genetically modified organism. It's a type of rice that has vitamin A in it. Vitamin A is basically um, beta carotene. It's the, it's the thing you find in carrots. And in great chunks of the world, it could make a huge difference if people were exposed to or had, had in their, in their diet, um, uh, vitamin A, foods that contain vitamin A, uh, during their early development. As children uh, are weaned and begin eating solid food, this is the place where vitamin A is critical. And in large swaths of the world, you can see Africa, South America, China, there's, there's great parts of the world where the diet doesn't include any natural sources of vitamin A. Golden rice could save millions of lives and, and affect the trajectory of probably a billion lives. So... Is it good to mix things? Is it good to mix, to play with genes, to, to play Dr. Frankenstein with viruses? You know, it's hard to say. You know, there's, there's pros and there's cons. So, I think we should at least say to ourselves, let's be careful. Let's be careful about what we mix in the area of things. But, but as I said, this is not really, I don't think about cattle. I don't think it's about fields. I don't think It's about what kind of clothes you wear. I think it's mainly about people. And that is what the way it has traditionally been interpreted and misinterpreted. By the first century, the way most people saw this, this type of thinking, this is one of many passages in the, the Hebrew scriptures that refer to intermarriage and things like that. Um, and by the time of Jesus, people generally looked at those and said, okay, here's the solution have nothing to do with those people, right? I'm not going to mix with them because they're, they're contagious. They will rub off on me. I don't want to have anything, you know, you know, I want to socially distance myself from people like that. And that is exactly what Jesus didn't do because don't mix doesn't mean don't mingle. As I mentioned to the children, the tax collectors and the sinners were gathering around Jesus, gathering, you know, imagine a church where the people most eager to come on Sundays were the sinners. What a great testimony that would be about a church. 
The tax collectors and the sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the legal experts were grumbling and saying, this man, this man, he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. He has table fellowship with people like that. Jesus says, yes, I do. You know, Jesus ends that that story about the, the, the legal expert who came to him and said, what's the great commandment? He ends that with the, the, the story about the Good Samaritan. He says, he says, what do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered him? The people who were just like him, the people who shared a religion, probably, you know, he, he was on his way down from, from Jerusalem. He had probably been to the temple that day and coming up the other way, were people going to the temple? The Samaritan, he doesn't worship at that temple. Who is his neighbor? God doesn't want us to meet in the middle. God doesn't want us to compromise. God doesn't want us to abandon our principles. However, whatever fraction of our principles we, we have to abandon this time, God doesn't want us to abandon our principles. God wants us to have unity in all of our diversity. So, I want to encourage you. You know, Thanksgiving is coming. Thanksgiving and then in, in December, Festivus are famous for the airing of grievances. The opportunity to see somebody you haven't seen in a long time, the person that if they weren't a relative you would have unfriended, <laughs> you may still have muted, because you just don't want to deal with them. Here's a thought. How about this Thanksgiving? This Christmas, this Festivus, when you see that person, say, my primary objective to yourself, don't say this out loud, my primary objective is to love this person in all their variety. And yes, I can't believe the way that they think about Trump. I cannot believe they vote the way they do. I cannot believe that they feel that way about masks. But there's one thing I can make sure they know, which is that either way, I love them. I love them because they reflect the variety of a great God. Let's try doing that. Let's try doing that. Let's let's eat with tax collectors and sinners. Let's eat with crazy uncles and rebellious nephews. Let's deal with our in-laws this Thanksgiving, the way Jesus dealt with the dregs of society. Let's pray. Loving God, it's hard. It's hard to deal with people who are different from us. We do want to change them into our own shape, to to beat them to fit and paint them to match. Lord, help us to appreciate them, to to realize that the things that make them the way they are originate in you. And each of us, Lord, has responded to the, the, the difficulties of this fallen world in different ways. But help us to see in them what you see in them. Help us to appreciate their differences as much as their similarities. Lord, we pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.